Well, this morning we enter the second week of Advent, this season of waiting, this season of eager expectation, this season wherein we stand with that Psalm 85 community, which was our Old Testament reading, asking, Lord, how long will you be angry with us? Remember, Israel sings that while they're in exile, while they're suffering at the hands of the disciplining work of God. Um, and we, we, in this season of Advent, can stand with them because, in some sense, we're, we're placing ourselves back before the nativity. And we're, we're singing their songs of eager expectation. But we're doing that to be like training wheels for us to balance ourselves for life on this side of the nativity, where we, too, are looking forward to the coming of the Lord, though we know that His anger has been satiated and satisfied in the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, we take up that anticipation and that eager waiting. Well, this morning, our text, I mentioned that our first three Sundays of Advent, we would be in the book of Second Thessalonians. Um, and last week, we considered Second Thessalonians 1. Today, we'll look at chapter 2 and use this book in which Paul is challenging and pointing his people forward uh, to set our, calibrate our hearts and minds. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2 is a notoriously thorny uh, chapter of the Bible, uh, a difficult uh, one indeed. Interpreters and commentators are all over the place on, uh, on this chapter. So we, we have to tippy-toe in here. We have to, we go in with, uh, um, with certain expectations that we're dealing with a challenging text. The reason this is a challenge is because uh, Paul uses terms, phrases, and sort of like chronological markers without specification. Right? He starts dropping names, man of lawlessness. And, well, who, okay, who is that? Who's that, Paul? Uh, he just says, you know, well, well, when the man of lawlessness comes. Um, and you know who the restrainer is. <laughs> who? <laughs> you know, who is it, Paul? Uh, you know, and, and, he, he, and when he's out of the way, then that'll happen. Um, and so there's all of these indicators that uh, are left uh, anonymous for us, and which, of course, leads commentators and certainly modern Christians uh, to great uh, interpretation and all sorts of gymnastics to, to form uh, theories about what is going on here. Now, our text is broken up. Uh, we'll just use the headings that are there in front of us. You can see that our text is broken up in the New King James into two sections, verses 1 through 12 and then 13 to 17. So first, we have this description uh, by Paul of what our text calls the great apostasy. Uh, we might also have titled this the coming of the Lord because that's how he begins. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, so we might have uh, we might have been able to again. Paul did not write the bold headings in there. Uh, that's something that uh, the the editors of these translations do. Uh, so we have this first description of a, of an issue going on in Thessalonica, and Paul engaging them, and then secondly the charge. And so I want us to think about these two things. I want us to take up Paul's issue in the first part of it, and then receive his charge through the Thessal uh, Thessalonians to us. Apparently, there's an issue in Thessalonica. People are wondering and thinking that the 
and I'm going to put air quotes here, the coming of the Lord has, has occurred. Um, and Paul is writing to them to say, hey, whoa, 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 everybody, calm, calm down, calm down. Uh, no, in fact, the coming of the Lord has not happened, okay? Uh, don't listen to what you've received by letters and so forth. Uh, nobody has, no, no, there's been no formal message that the coming of the Lord <clears throat> has happened. Relax. Remember, I, I talked to you about this, he says. I told you about this when, when I was there. Certain things are going to need to take place. And first, there is going to be a, a, a massive apostasy. Uh, there's going to have to be the turning away first. Uh, before that day comes, uh, he says this in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And then the man of sin uh, is revealed. That is the son of perdition. Okay. <laughs> and that hasn't happened yet. Okay. And so therefore, don't, don't sweat it at this point. That's going to happen first. And then when that happens, remember, this man of lawlessness, this son of perdition, this man of sin, is going to set himself up in the temple of God uh, and even, even act like he is God. Uh, he's, gonna, he's going to attribute uh, God's characteristics to him, and he's going to deceive many uh, by the power of Satan. Um, and... The Lord is even going to send a spirit of delusion upon many who will follow him. And, uh, and then, indeed, you will know the coming of the Lord is upon us, and he will come and the Lord will destroy him in the brightness of his coming. And so that's the event that is described for us here. Now, the, the challenge of this is what is he talking about? Is he talking about an event at the second coming? When we read words like this, and you'll remember when, when I preached through Revelation, th these things are so odd to us and so strange. This man of lawlessness seems like a figure that is just this one-of-a-kind character. John maybe speaks of him. People have associated the man of lawlessness with in the epistles of John when he talks about the Antichrist. In Revelation... John gives us a vision of Antichrist, not as a man, but as a beast. And so we get these dynamic characterizations and titles and names, and we push this off into the future because it seems bizarre to us. It seems odd. It seems superhuman. You know, it seems cataclysmic. And so this has to be speaking about the end times. And perhaps it is. Perhaps it is. But there's another possibility as well. And the other possibility is that what Paul is addressing is something that was timely and relevant to the people he was actually writing to. Right? There was a cataclysmic event that was about to happen. It will not happen in Paul's lifetime. Paul is, Paul is martyred around 60 A.D. But in 70 AD, something cataclysmic. In a certain world, in a certain mindset, almost end of the world-like happened in that the Romans marched into Jerusalem and laid, well, put, laid siege to the city for three years and then utterly destroyed it. Right? Left not one stone standing upon another. You'll remember Jesus prophesied such things in, in the, uh, the coming of the Romans there uh, upon Jerusalem. Now, 
this seems, this to us kind of gets overlooked because there's, there's no, we don't have the history of that event in our Bibles. You need to read Josephus for that, right? You can read other secular historians to get the story of the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't have it. And therefore, it, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is not something that is on the forefront of the minds of most Christians, right? If we think about the great events of, of biblical history, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD isn't even on the list because it happens after, or, or at least it's not included in the pages of Scripture. But I assure you, it was cataclysmic. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD marked the end of an era. It marked the final punctuated end to official Judaism, right? Old Testament Judaism. The priesthood, the temples, the sacrifices, all these things were gone now. And we were out into the sea if you will, of the new covenant life in Jesus Christ. Israel having been radically redefined uh, uh, now in Christ, their Messiah. And the Old Testament forms were now gone. Now again, I I'm going on about this because another interpretation of what's happening here in 2 Thessalonians is that Paul is describing that. And so we're left with a question. Is Paul describing, is the coming of the Lord and the gathering of his people something that's happening in 70 AD that has not yet happened? And Paul says, oh, you might have heard it happen. No, 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 it hasn't happened yet. Remember, we don't have Twitter. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like we find out things instantly, okay? Gene will know that yesterday my beloved Dodgers signed Shohei Otani. And I know, I know Gene is going to say this to me, and this is almost sacrilegious to talk about in, on a Sunday morning, but I'm not talking about Shohei Otani, okay, the great pitcher for, that is now signed with the Dodgers, only to say this. I had a feeling he was going to sign yesterday, and I'm a Dodgers fan. So I was kind of anxious because rumor was he may sign with the Dodgers. So I kept looking at all the social media to see if, hey, any, uh, any signing of Shohei Otani? No, 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 nothing. And I was sitting at Tommy. Tommy had a little basketball thing yesterday, and I'm sitting out in the parking lot waiting for Christina to get him. And I get a, I get a text from one of my former students, who's now at Liberty University. Mr. Spanger, congratulations on the Dodgers getting Shohei Otani. And I, I said, oh, I, what? The Dodgers got... So, I, so I, I quick, you know, I'm going to some social... So I Google, I Google Shohei, bang, it comes right up. It happened, the signing... It didn't even happen. Shohei Otani put it on Instagram. And 10 minutes ago, it was reported. And I got a student reaching out to me. I mean, this is happening in California. Who would know these things? But Shohei Otani signs with the Dodgers. And instantly, I have a student going, congratulations, Mr. Spander. Like, wow. Like, I, how did you know? Like, things just fly. News flies. He signs, boom, I'm being congratulated. I did nothing. <laughs> But news flies like that. In 60, in 55, news does not fly like that. Rumors fly. You know, it's a, did you hear what happened? I think it's happened. Remember Paul told us something? Was, I think it happened. And Paul is saying, hey, 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 it didn't happen. Okay, it didn't happen. So now, could, could the issue here be the second coming? And they're wondering, did, 
did Christ come and the world's over and we're still left? Could that be the delusion and the mistake that's happening here? It could be. It could be. Odd that Paul say, well, you didn't hear about it in a letter yet. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's how the second coming is is going to be. You know, hey, just you know, sending out you know mail, putting in the postage. Christ is back. I think Paul is describing something that they are having to deal with. In fact, and then and then I'll, I'll break this down a little bit. Again, we can talk more in Sunday school, but but he actually says that the spirit of lawlessness is now at work among us. So something, this, this spirit of lawlessness, this spirit of antichrist is already bubbling and brewing at the time when he's writing to the, to the, uh, Thessalonians. And so again, I think we're dealing with something at, that's going on in his time. Now, I'm telling you what I think. <laughs> you, you, you're free to disagree with me on this. And, and to be honest, for the sermon today, I don't think it matters. Okay, and here's why. Here's why. When we stand here in Advent and we think about Israel, we say, oh, we're going back and standing with our Old Testament brothers and sisters looking forward to the celebration of the birth of Christ. We must remember, and I think it's important to remember here, what the purpose of Old Testament Israel was. Old Testament Israel was the means by which God was going to bless all the nations of the earth, okay? Remember, there was no Israel. There were no Jews before Abraham, okay? Noah was not a Jew. There is no Judaism. God takes Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm making a new nation out of you. Among all the, all the peoples of the world, right after the dispersing of the Tower of Babel, I'm taking you, Abraham, and now I'm going to begin a new people. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, okay? Somehow, through you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we know that it is through the line of Abraham now that ultimately Messiah will come and bear the curse of the world so that then all the nations of the earth can be blessed. And hence, after his death and resurrection, this descendant of Abraham, this seed of Abraham, even Jesus Christ, says, now, go to all nations, baptizing them, making disciples, okay? And the gospel then goes from Israel now out to the entire world. In the meantime, between Abraham and Messiah, Israel demonstrates for the world as like, think of Israel in the Old Testament like a little microcosm of humanity, okay? A little object lesson for the world to demonstrate what a holy people is to look like, to demonstrate how God relates to his holy people, what sin looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what uncleanness looks like, and what holiness looks like. And their land that they receive in, in Israel, in the land of Canaan, is to be a little cordoned off area of holiness. You don't involve the Gentiles here. You don't intermarry. You don't eat certain things. We are going to be a people holy unto the Lord. And we're going to demonstrate in this little way, until Christ comes, what holiness is to look like. Again, I use the image all the time of training wheels. It's almost like Israel is the world's training wheels. And I'm not saying this to minimize. This, Paul says, is a tremendous honor. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not minimizing, oh, Israel, they're the training wheels of the world. No, 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 don't hear it that way. So in that way, training wheels is a bad metaphor. But 
I'm using it to imagine just that they're precious training wheels, okay? Because without these training wheels, we don't get a picture of what Messiah is going to do. Without these training wheels, we don't understand the story. Without these training wheels, we don't know who we are as the people of God. So this is, Paul says, this is an honor above all honors. You know, what good is it to be a Jew? He asked the Romans. He says, it's great in every way. We brought the oracles of God to the world. We brought Messiah to the world. So Israel is like the training wheel nation. They're going to help the whole world learn to get its balance in riding the bike of holiness, okay? Of riding the bike of being the identified people of God. And so we watch them and we see what righteousness is to look like and holiness is to look like, what sin is to look like, and what judgment looks like. We watch Israel sometimes and we go, wow, how awesome is that just to get bread from heaven? Wow, to be a people that God just provides for like that. And here we pray today, Lord, give us today our daily bread. You know, we say, wow, just imagine needing water and a rock opens up and gives it to you. What? Imagine, imagine God just served his people like that. You raise your arms, you win battles. Wow, what an awesome thing. And so sometimes we can look at Israel with envy and we shouldn't be envious because that's all, that's what we get in Jesus Christ. Ooh, sometimes you look at Israel and your legs begin quivering in fear. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm not them. When you watch the Babylonians come in and, and bring destruction, we go, Poof. imagine having your disobedience bring that kind of immediate physical judgment. I mean, we, we, we doubt the judgment of God because he's so abiding with us and so patient with us. But we look at Israel and go, okay, I am happy to be a, a Dutchman. You know, I'm happy to be a German. I'm happy to be something other. That I, I don't have that kind of immediate relationship. Well, you do. You do. It's coming. Israel is the training wheels. Is, Israel is the microcosm. And therefore, this is why I say it doesn't matter. It matters because we want to be right to the interpretation. But, but when we look at, at 2 Thessalonians 2, the reason why I can say it doesn't matter too much for the sermon this morning though I can make my case why I think Paul's addressing the, the Israel in 70 AD, is because as to Israel, so the world. The destruction of Jerusalem is a microcosm of the judgment of the world. As to Jerusalem, so one day to the world. And therefore, if Paul is talking about Jerusalem, we don't have to go, oh, whew, okay, good, man, well, okay, we don't have to worry about that. No, 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 that's microcosm, okay? As to Jerusalem, so one day to the entire world. Paul talks here about, now, brothers, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go, well, Bill, there's the, he's talking about the coming of the Lord. I know. But if you flipped your Bibles over to Matthew 24, uh, Jesus is addressing the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. We notice he uses the same kind of language. You'll notice there in the, in the breakdowns, the signs of the end of the age, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. This sounds, again, it's so cataclysmic. We think, well, oh, this has to be the, the end, right? Because my goodness, stars haven't fallen out of the sky and the sun and the moon haven't been darkened will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven. 
Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And he will send into angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now remember, there's no headings when Matthew wrote this. Just let's keep reading. From one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender, it puts forth its leaves, and you know that summer is near. So you also, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near. It's at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This generation will not pass away before the coming of the Lord. Now, this has led many people to go, see, this is why we can't trust the Bible. Because the Bible says the coming of the Lord is going to happen before this generation is gone. And oh, Paul Paul really believed it. It's going to come, it's going to come, it's going to come. And it didn't. And so we see that the prophecy is wrong. We see that Paul is wrong. The expectation was wrong. But I want to tell you, I think it's a misinterpretation. (laughs) That's not what's being described here, the second coming. What's being described here is the coming that he mentions in Daniel. You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. But do you remember? We just preached through Daniel. Hey, hooray, this is great. In Daniel 7, when the Son of Man was coming on the clouds, do you remember which direction he was coming? (laughs) He wasn't coming down to earth in the second coming. He said, I saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and Daniel's writing it from the perspective of heaven as the Son of Man is coming to the Father. And when he gets to the Father, he is given all authority and power over heaven and earth to rule. And Jesus is describing that. You'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And he describes this great tribulation and he describes, then he's going to go on to talk. This is where, again, people get the idea of the, of the rapture. Two will be working in the field. One will be taken. One will be left, right? You get this left behind. The idea that somehow people are going to be snatched up to heaven. I, I don't think that's what's being described there. I think what's being described here is the Romans are coming. And when they come, it's going to happen on a day you're not going to see it coming. And all of a sudden, here they are going to be at our doorstep and they're going to bring destruction. And two people are going to be working on the field, and one's going to be all taken away. Not unto glory, but to Rome, you know, to, as a prisoner. I hope this doesn't happen in the winter. I hope you're not pregnant when this happens so that you can run, right? He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, yet he uses the language of the coming of Christ. Now, I admit that that's fuzzy for us. I, I admit, you, and again, that's why I say we can we can argue it whether we think that's because Christ is going to come, right? So I don't want to deny that. So we, But again, you can see that it at least presents the challenge of trying to think, okay, what coming are you talking about, Paul? Because back to 1 Thessalonians, he's, when he says concerning the coming of the Lord, now brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord and of the gathering of, our, uh, of us together, remember that in Matthew 24, The sun will be darkened, the moon will be darkened, stars are going to fall, right? There's going to be this upheaval within the powers of our age. And then the Son of Man will come, and the angels will gather the elect from all the nations, which again is what I believe we're in right now, right? So indeed, Jerusalem has fallen, 
and the gospel has gone out into the world, and the elect are being gathered from all the nations. Now concerning brethren, uh, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together in Him, we ask you uh, not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Okay, again, could be thinking second coming. I want to argue. I think he's talking about that cataclysmic day uh, in, in which uh, judgment is going to be brought upon Jerusalem. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Again, now this could be a falling away at the end of time that maybe, at the, again, this is what uh, some evangelicals believe that at the end of time there's going to be a great falling away and then there's going to be a time of great sin and maybe Christians are going to be raptured out of this and 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 you know they view the church as the restrainer and they're going to be raptured up out and there's going to be a falling away and a man of lawlessness this antichrist figure is going to get and start reigning over the earth it, that, that's that's a common evangelical interpretation I just don't agree with it. The falling away here, I believe, is the apostasy of Israel that happens after Messiah. And you'll remember, I, I should have maybe I should have chosen this as our word of exhortation today, or even New Testament reading from that parable in, in Matthew 21. Jesus tells the parable of the wedding guests. You remember? And the time for the wedding is here. And he, the king, the king's son is getting married, and he he sends out his servants in to go tell all the people who've received the invitation to come to the wedding. And so they do, and they go out and they tell the people, hey, the bridegroom is here. It's the time for the wedding. Hooray, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Come to the party. And do you remember what happens? The invited guests say no. Not only do they say no, they beat up the messengers and kill them and say, we're not coming. And some bedraggled messengers make their way back to the king, huffing and puffing. And, and the king says, well, where are all the guests? And they say, they're not coming. And they beat us up and they killed some of our guys. Do you remember what the king says? Huh? Go out to the streets and invite others. This is the class participation part of the sermon. <laughs> Go out to the streets and invite others. Aha, but that's not what he says. Now, he does say that, Carol, you're exactly right. But he says something else first. Maybe I might get my order wrong, so maybe I won't. Tim? Okay, compel others to come. Okay, fine. Okay. He says, no, no, no. He says, go destroy their city and burn it to the ground. Because they won't come to the party? Read the parable. It's like, it's like, oh, they won't come? Okay, he sends his armies out to destroy their cities. And then he says, now go to the highways and the byways and bring any who will come, you see. There is this apostasy. There is this destruction of the city. And there's the then going out and gathering. Do you see the pattern? That's one. This is one reason why I would argue that what Paul is describing here is this, this great. He said, no, 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 no. The city is not being destroyed, right? That, that coming of the Lord in judgment has not yet happened. What has to happen first is the full rejection. And I, that's been happening since Christ. But apparently in Paul's mind, I think he's saying that hasn't fully happened yet. That's got to happen. 
and then the judgment will come. So that's one time indicator. And then the second time indicator is this man of lawlessness, which, which again, Jesus refers to in the sermon, the, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, but he calls it the abomination of desolation, which again, praise God, we just went through Daniel because in Daniel, we saw the image of that, that one is going to come and he's going to set himself up in the temple. And Antiochus IV did that. And Jesus picks that up in Matthew 24 and says, yep, that's going to happen again. And that'll be a sign to you that all hell's going to break loose. When you see, let the reader understand the abomination of desolation. And that's exactly what happened as the Roman emperor sent his image to be set up within the temple. And then the judgment, uh, then, then the, the, the Romans came and brought an end. Okay, so again, I think that what Paul is describing here, again, commentators can disagree. I'm not claiming I know this. I'm telling you what I think is the case. But I'm also saying to you, and, and let me leave this point now with this. As we look at Israel, if in fact it's 70 AD, but even if it's not, what we see indeed is a cataclysmic judgment that is coming by Christ. And hence, in this season of Advent, whether we look back to the destruction of Jerusalem, and if we do, because whether or not this text is what it's about, it did happen, and it was cataclysmic, that if we look back to Jerusalem and see its destruction by the hand of God through the Romans, let us be warned as we look forward now to the end and we wait with eager expectation the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that that he's delivering you from. It's that that he's delivering. I mean, people were eating their own children in Jerusalem. Their children would die and they would eat them. I mean, that's how bad it got. You read Josephus. It, Josephus, it was bad. And that's a little microcosm of the judgment that is to come. And therefore, in this season of Advent, let us look sober-mindedly to know what awaits us at the end. Now, that brings me to the end in verse 13, our charge. If, as Paul looks at this, and I think he's encouraging the Thessalonians to know that day of judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. It has not yet come, but it's coming. It brings us to verse 13. But we, that is Paul, are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Right? You, hey, hey, brothers, I, I know there's a cataclysmic thing going on over here. And man, we can grieve the fact that the invited guests did not want to come to the party. That's We can grieve that and we should grieve that. But I, at the same time, I'm, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing because while I grieve that on the one hand, I rejoice that you have received the invitation. I rejoice that you are chosen by God in the Spirit for salvation, sanctification in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel, right? The invitation came to you for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the charge to us then. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. And what does standing fast mean? Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And by traditions, he means what's been taught, what's been handed down to you. Okay, by my writings, but also by word, what has come to you through the elders. 
and this doesn't mean every little tradition of the Christian church, but the teaching of the church through the ages should matter to us and we must lay hold of it and we must be careful. We spent time in Sunday school last week thinking about that Robert Louis Wilkin article about building Christian culture, not Christianizing American culture, but by building a Christian church culture. And part of that has to do with the traditions, to know what Christians have believed and thought and taught and making sure that we believe it, that we use the words they use, that even some of the beautiful traditions that we think point us to that and help us to remember it, like the church calendar we're doing. It's not, it's not you're commanded to do it. We do it because we want to lay hold. We don't want to forget to look forward to Christ and get caught up in the sentimentality of American Christmas, which is not an evil thing. But God forbid that in all of that, we forget to long for the coming of Christ. So your first charge is knowing that judgment is has come and is coming. Stand fast. Hold firm to the traditions that have been handed down to you by word or by epistle. And then even though he gives it in a benediction, the second charge I want to give to you comes in a, in a prayer for a blessing. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts. So we don't talk about this cataclysmic judgment to make our legs wobble and to make us nervous and start thinking that we've got to earn our way to acceptance with God. No, here's the second charge to you. Take comfort. Isaiah gets the blessed joy of saying to, to his people for the word of God, comfort, yes, comfort my people. Speak peace to Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken the cataclysmic judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem was only an outworking of what happened to him. He was destroyed. He was the temple left not one stone standing upon another. He was buried in the ground. Yet for us, and as such, he was raised from the dead so that all of the wrath of God, all the judgment of God is behind us. We have been saved from it. We have been spared from it. So take comfort in that. Comfort your hearts and finally establish, be established in every good word and work. Because we are comforted, we're the Advent people who are not anxiously awaiting. We're not trembling, oh no, what's going to happen when the Lord comes? Because we know what we have in Christ, we can be comforted and established, stable, strong, to what end? For every good work. Get to work. Get to work. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. You have only rejoicing ahead of you. So be established in that, stand fast, and get to work. In word and work, be salt and light. Let the, let the radiance of the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ beam off of you because you have the comfort of knowing your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you even for a challenging text such as this one. And Father, while we confess we may not see clearly to know exactly what Paul is referencing here, but nonetheless what we do understand, O Lord God, is that your judgment will fall upon man. As it fell upon Christ, as it fell upon Jerusalem, so will it fall upon the world. And so we pray for faithfulness. We pray for comfort and for establishing, being established in Christ for every good work and word. 
Father, we pray that we would stand fast and hold firm to the truth as it's been handed down through the apostles and, Father, by your grace through church history. And so, Father, make us faithful, we pray, that indeed the light and the sweetness and the radiance of the gospel, the comfort of the gospel, might radiate off of us to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.